Last night at about 9.30 p.m., our doorbell rang. Not expecting anybody, we were, we were quite surprised, and so we opened up the door. More, my, my wife opened up the door, and there's a man standing there, a man we do not know, and this man is holding one thing, an eight-pack of toilet paper. And my wife is all kinds of confused. But I had seen this man once before. About four hours earlier when he had delivered our groceries. And evidently, at the end of his shift, at the end of his night, he realized that he forgot to deliver this part of our order. And so he went out of his way to come back to our place at 9.30 at night and give it to us. To be a man of honesty and integrity, he simply said, I forgot to give this to you, it is yours. He handed it to my wife, and he walked away. We're both quite shocked, right? In fact, I ran, grabbed a little bit of cash from my wife, and tracked him down before he get on the elevator and said, listen... This is awesome. Here's just a little extra tip. God bless you. Thank you. Why? Because that's what honesty is. It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's life-giving. And it's shocking. Why? Because sadly, it's not as common as we hope. In fact, we live in a society that swims in lies and deceit. A TED Talk titled, The Truth About Lying, claims we're lied to 10 to 200 times a day and tell a lie ourselves an average of one to two times in that same period. How do we even know if that's true? That's just the problem, isn't it? I mean, think about some of the terms that are commonplace today. Fake news. Alternative facts. We have websites like Snopes that are, that are dedicated to sussing out what is true. Social media flags whatever they deem to be misinformation or disinformation. I could go on, but I'll let the theologian Billy Joel make the point for me. The chorus of his song, Honesty. Honesty is such a lonely word, everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard. And mostly what I need from you. Billy Joel is right. Our world is riddled with dishonesty and deceit. But Christians are called to be different. Beloved, we will never be perfect. And let's never forget our confidence, our joy, our righteousness does not come from comparing ourselves to the world around us. The Bible does not call us to compare, but to Christ himself. And the more we behold Christ, the more we see Christ, the more we will become like him. And and not just tell the truth, we will delight in the truth. Because this is where true freedom and joy is found. Because the truth is beautiful. The truth is compelling. The truth is life-giving. And that's what our brother James is calling us to this morning. We'll focus just on one verse this morning. James chapter 5, verse 12. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn there and have it open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull one out from the chair in front of you and you'll find James chapter 5, verse 12 on page 1013. James chapter 5, 1013. 
But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's read that again out loud all together. Let's read it together. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, here we are. We're coming to the end of the letter of James. Only two more sermons after this one, a few more verses. And here we are, and essentially we've come full circle. James is writing to Christians who are facing trials and temptations. And remember how he began his letter, calling these brothers and sisters to be patient, prayerful, single-minded, and steadfast enduring whatever they face. And that's essentially how he ends the letter. As we saw last week in verses five, uh, chapter 5, 7 through 11, James encourages his readers to be patient and steadfast in the midst of suffering as they wait for the Lord. And next week's passage, verses 13 through 18, is a call to prayer. And look down in your Bible. What's the first thing he addresses? Suffering in verse 13. And so at first, verse 12 looks out of place. Patient suffering comes before it. Prayerful suffering comes after it. Why have these words on swearing and speaking here? And I think the reason is this. James knows that one of the temptations in the midst of suffering and stress, especially when called to patiently endure, is to sin verbally. We saw that in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. And now James broadens the call. Not just to not grumble against one another, but to be entirely truthful to everyone, no matter what we face, every circumstance, every situation, to honor God with our words, to serve others with our words. Because James knows our words matter a lot, as we'll see in just a moment. Here again, he's calling us to evaluate our speech. And in this verse, James is exhorting us to at least three things. First, Remember the weight of your words. Second, don't deceive others. Third, delight in the truth together. Let's look at each of those. Remember the weight of your words. Again, notice how James begins, verse 12, but above all. Now, what is James doing here? I think he's, he's emphasizing, he's, he's double-clicking on what he's saying. He's saying, listen, don't Don't minimize your words. He's not saying this is the most important thing he said, forget everything else. No, he's just saying pay attention to your words. Basically, it could also be translated now before all things. Before all things, pay special attention to your words. Watch what you say. And this shouldn't surprise us. James has been focusing on our speech. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of James, he often gets the reputation for, for being the book of works. Show your faith by your works. I submit to you, it's not just show your faith by your works, but James is also a book of words. Show your faith by your words. James has a lot to say about what we say, doesn't he? More than 20 times throughout the letter, he's referenced our speech. Here's just a little review. Chapter 1, verse 13. In the face of temptation, he writes, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. 
Chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is all about how we use our words to show partiality. We can't forget chapter 3. The whole chapter is on the power of the tongue. Chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. And again, verse 12, he's addressing our speech again. Why? Because James knows the fruit of our words reveal the root, or the, the root of our heart comes out in the fruit of our words. Remember Jesus. Kids, this is your memory verse. Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth... That's right. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The content of our speech reveals the core of our soul. Or... Raise your hand if you remember the old Polaroid cameras. You take a picture and it comes out and you like you wave it around, right? And a picture develops. That's our words. As we speak, a picture of our soul begins to develop. And James is inviting us to evaluate the authenticity of our faith by examining the accent of our tongue. James wants us to see we cannot claim to love Christ and know him and then speak however we want. The the Christian should be salt and light in a decaying and dark world. Others might flippantly use the name of God as nothing more than a substitute for a cuss word, but not the Christian. Others might have a vulgar vocabulary, but Christian speech should be pure. Lying and deceit might be the norm in the world, but we live for a better world. But above all, my brothers and sisters, remember the weight of your words. See, your words aren't just what we say. Our words show who we are. Right? We can be tempted that, that we, our words are simply tools to make our lives easier, to, to express our opinions, to protect our reputation. And because of that, words are there to serve us. So it's okay to exaggerate a little to make ourselves look better. It's, it's okay to embellish the truth so we look that much more accomplished. It's fine to minimize our wrongs so we're more likable. But our words are not a tool we use just for us. They're a precious and powerful gift given to us by God that we might honor him. So studies tell us the average human being utters between ten and 20,000 words a day. So you literally have 10 to 20,000 opportunities today to apply this sermon. You want a relevant sermon? Here you go. 10 to 20,000 times today. 100,000 times by the end of this week. That's practical. But how are we to use them? Well, James gives us some directions. He tells us what not to do and what to do. He gives us a prohibition and a prescription. Look again at verse 12. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, 
That's the prohibition. But let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. That's the prescription. Or as I said it, don't deceive others. Delight in the truth together. Don't deceive others. James begins the exhortation by telling us what not to do. Do not swear by heaven, by earth, by any oath. Now I know some of you, this causes questions. What does James mean here? Well, I'll tell you if things out. I don't think that he means. I don't think he, he's only or primarily telling us to refrain from swearing. As in, don't use profanity. Don't cuss. Don't say nasty four-letter words. Now, to be clear, I don't think the Christians speak that way. Ephesians chapter 4 would, would instruct us otherwise. And I don't think James is only talking about swearing by using God's name in vain. Right? So his primary interest isn't just to keep us from saying, oh my, or using the name of Jesus as a fill-in when we're frustrated, or for heaven's sake when we're angry. Though to be clear, I don't think the Christians should speak that way. Scripture has plenty to say about those things. We should not use the Lord's name irreverently or disrespectfully. And I don't think James is saying we should never take an oath. Right? So some Christians read this passage and the one we're getting ready to read in a minute, and they come to that conclusion. The Christian should never make a promise, never make an oath. And if, if that's your conscience, I can, I can respect that. But I don't think that's what James has in mind for at least a couple of reasons. First, there are examples in Scripture of oaths being taken. On a couple of occasions, the Apostle Paul himself takes an oath. And even Jesus Christ speaks under oath before Pontius Pilate. Second, it seems as though James has everyday conversation and communication in mind, not isolated instances. So I don't think James envisions giving testimony in a courtroom where a person takes an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't think James has in mind a maybe a military swearing-in ceremony where a person makes an oath to protect the nation, or a political office where a, where a person is sworn in to fulfill their duties, or the oath that we might take when we get married to pledge our faithfulness. I don't think that's what James has in mind. It appears as though on instances, serious occasions, that oaths are allowable. So what is James talking about? What's his point? Well, James is picking up what Jesus taught, Matthew chapter 5. So keep a finger in James 5, flip back to Matthew 5, just a few pages to your left. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your one hair white or black. Let what others, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Sound familiar? And do you see the problem that Jesus is addressing? The Old Testament says what Jesus notes in verse 33. If if you make a vow to the Lord, you must perform it. So these people thought, ah, well then we'll just swear on something other than the name of the Lord. Maybe we'll swear on heaven or on earth or on Jerusalem or maybe just the, the hair on our head. And because God's name is not used, if I break my vow, then 
No big deal. And they might say something like, I promise, for heaven's sake, let me borrow your donkey, and I'll bring it back tomorrow. Tomorrow rolls around, and they just want to keep the donkey a little bit longer. And they, we didn't swear on God's name, and so I can keep it, and it be just fine. They had this idea that if God's name was used to make a promise explicitly, then God was involved in the transaction. But if we get technical and create some loopholes and we don't use God's name, then we can say whatever we want. And you see the problem. They were attempting to make a vow while keeping a secret escape hatch open. They wanted their words to have the appearance of truth, all the while deceiving those who they were talking to. They were like the children on the playground. They make a promise, but then they say, ha ha, had my fingers crossed behind my back, doesn't count. And James is saying, listen, I'm talking more about oath-taking. I am talking about truth-telling. James is calling us to a life that is so permeated with integrity that we don't need oaths at all. We shouldn't have to say, well, this time I, I promise. Or have you ever noticed how often you might begin a statement with, honestly, why? That shouldn't even be enough. Like, we shouldn't have to qualify what we say. Pinky promises for the Christian shouldn't be necessary. As one pastor said, we shouldn't need to emphasize the truthfulness of a particular part of our speech because all our speech should be true and trustworthy. We speak the truth not because we take an oath or make a promise. We speak the truth because God is a God of truth and he's called us to image him to display his character and goodness. Where might you be tempted otherwise? Do you tend to exaggerate your responsibilities and accomplishments at work when talking to others? When you know you failed at something or you're in trouble, do you lie just a little bit to make it seem not so bad? Or maybe flat out lie altogether to remove all blame? When asked about something you literally have no clue about, do you try to save face and, well, yeah, yeah, I know about that, huh? Or do you just admit, I have no clue what you're talking about? What about those social media posts? Do you embellish or selectively edit to project an image of yourself that's not entirely accurate? Have you ever told someone, I'm almost there, when you're really just leaving? Have you ever showed up late to a meeting or skipped church or community group and then a less than honest excuse? Are your words filled with technicalities and loopholes just so you can justify your decisions in a way that serve you even if it hurts others? Have you ever responded to an Evite with maybe when you truly mean no? Are there areas in your life where you stretch the truth just a little bit? Maybe bump that GPA up just a bit. Add another two inches to your height. Maybe just add a few dollars to what you make how many books you read during a given year, how skilled you are at that hobby. Are there areas in your life where you subtract from the truth? How many drinks you had last night? How much money you spent on that shopping spree? How much TV you watched? How often you indulged that sin? See, here's the thing. All of us are prone. Why? It's who we are. Left to ourselves. 
Right, so who taught you how to lie? No one. Kids, my guess is your, your parents didn't sit down and say, listen, now that you've finished your math homework and your science homework, let me teach you the art of deceit. And if they did, come talk to me. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we're all guilty in one way or another, myself the foremost. That list isn't just for you, it's for my own life. It's where I'm tempted. And so, here's the thing. Just telling you don't lie, don't deceive others is not all that helpful. You, you didn't walk in there like, ah, I'd never thought about that. I'm so thankful. So we need to press a little deeper. We need to ask why. Why are we prone to lie? Why are we prone to stretch the truth? Why? And I think the root of lying is a desire to be accepted by others. We lie to make ourselves look better so others will think more highly of us. We want others to think we're smart, capable, accomplished. We want them to accept us. Or we withhold part of the truth so others won't think less of us. We, we hide and cover true parts of who we are so people won't reject us. We want to be accepted. And why do we want to be accepted? Because we want to be liked and we want to be loved. At the root of our lying is a longing for love. At the root of our lying is a longing for love. And this longing is good. This longing is right. You are meant to be loved, liked, cherished, and accepted. But here's the thing. Lying and deceit will never deliver the love for which you long. How do you get it? I'll answer that in a minute. But let me first show you what lying and deceit gives you. What does deceit deliver? James warns us. Look at the end of verse 12. Don't lie. Be people of honesty. So that you may not fall under condemnation. Lying does not lead to us being liked and loved, but to condemnation. Now I know what some of you are asking. It's the same thing I wrestled with this week. What does James mean here? What does he mean when he says fall under condemnation? Well, we can say this. First, James is addressing those who take the name of Jesus. They call themselves Christians. Notice he says brothers or brothers and sisters at the beginning of the verse. And we know for Christians, for those that are trusting in Christ, our eternal standing before God is not in question. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. James is not saying that you can somehow lose your salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We are welcomed into God's family, not by our pure speech, but by Jesus paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. And we know that payment is complete because Jesus rose from the dead. And so those who have turned from their sins, confessed their deceit and trust in Christ alone, have no reason to fear eternal judgment. But James is warning us of something, is he not? A lack of integrity, speech that deceives, does have negative consequences. While it may not sever us from God's love, it will disrupt our enjoyment of the relationship. It's like a loving father with a child. If the child lies, he'll still be a child. She'll still be a child. But there will be discipline because the father loves their child. 
See, we might try to lie and get the approval of others, but it only results in disrupting our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I think James is saying something else. James is reminding us, encouraging us, to not be double-minded. The Christians, don't be double-minded. Remember, that goes back to chapter 1. Don't be double-minded. Don't be double-minded hypocrites. Because you diminish the glory of the gospel. You distort the witness of the church. So he's calling us to examine. To say, you're saved by grace. And that same grace that saves empowers you to live differently. And I think also James is saying, what he's been saying throughout this letter. He's inviting us to evaluate the authenticity of our faith by examining the accent of our tongue. Jesus is not a, a build-your-own-saver like we're ordering a burrito at Chipotle. We don't get to pick and choose what we want and then leave the other bits behind the counter that we just don't like. And James is calling us to evaluate the totality of our lives, the the content of our words for the authenticity of faith. And here's what James is saying. James is saying if we regularly blaspheme God's name by habitually lying, if our lives are marked by deceit and dishonesty, without any conviction, without any godly sorrow, without any confession, without any repentance, we need to ask, am I really a Christian? That's what James is saying. Remember, our words flow from our heart. And a heart marked, marked, habitual pattern, a heart marked by unrepentant lying and repentant love for Jesus don't go together. Deceit of others and delight in Christ aren't compatible. And James, in his kindness, is holding the mirror of God's word before us so that we might see the reflection. And the reflection is this. None of us are perfect. James is an equal opportunity offender. So the question isn't, am I perfect? The question is, am I repentant? Are there areas in your life where you need to repent of being dishonest and deceitful that you need to confess to others? Grab a fellow church member and talk to that brother or sister. Grab someone in your community group and do what James says in verse 16. We'll see you next week. Confess your sins to one another. And when that happens, do what we're going to do in just a minute, which is apply the lavish grace of the gospel that frees and satisfies and reminds us, reminds us the truth is in Christ. If you don't have anybody to, come talk, to talk to, come talk to me or talk to Ray or anybody you've seen up here. Talk to the friend who brought you. Children, talk to your parents. Don't be afraid to tell them the truth. You don't have to hide and, and be dishonest. They love you and they want what's best for you. And the best thing you can do is always come to your parents with the truth. And when you don't lie, just go to them like, I'm sorry. I need to talk to you about something. For my non-Christian friends, have you considered what's keeping you from repenting and coming to Christ? To admitting the truth. Have you considered that below your lies, any dishonesty, that you might be living in is a desire to be liked and to be loved. And what if I told you that desire is a good thing? And what if I told you that desire to be, there's a way for that desire to be fulfilled? And what if I told you it's not just that you shouldn't be dishonest, but you don't need to be dishonest? How freeing would that be? How freeing would it be to know that you're liked and you're loved? Not because you've managed to present a version of yourself that is likable, 
but just as you are in your sin and your struggles. See, this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel, the good news, isn't just that we shouldn't be dishonest. It's that we don't have to be dishonest. Massive difference. You see, deceit results from a desire to be loved. But in actuality, it denies that love to us. Honesty, integrity, believing and living in the truth. That's what really, finally, fully satisfies our desire for love. And that's what James is getting at in the last part of this verse. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Delight in the truth together. See, he's not just saying tell the truth. He's saying delight in the truth. Right, Joey, where, where are you getting out of text, bro? Is that your, your Christian hedonism being ridden into the text? I don't think so. Remember what James said back in chapter 1. The law of God is the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law of joy, the law of satisfaction. And so when James gives us a command, he's calling us to joy, to liberty, to delight. That's what he's saying. He says the same thing in chapter 2, the law of freedom. So when James says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, we typically read it as we picture a grumpy old man, maybe a, grand, a grandfather sitting on the, the porch and his kids are running around having fun. He's, stop it. Stop having fun. I'm a captain in the fun police and you need to stop. That's not what he's saying. James, his words are not an indictment trying to stifle our joy. They're an invitation aimed to secure it. James is calling us to not a living, to live according to the world's fickle, fickle standards, to try to use our words to gain approval. Here's the problem with that. The moment you misspeak, you get canceled. That's how fickle and flimsy it is. James is saying, don't live for that. Live not for, but according to a greater approval. He's calling us to be who we are in Christ. Remember what he told us, chapter 1. We've been brought forth by the word of truth. The word of truth. And now he's calling us to live in light of that. If you're in Christ, you've been brought forth by the word of truth. And that word is liberating. It is freeing. It is satisfying. And so live in the freedom for which you've been purchased. That's what James is saying. We lie and deceive because we want to be liked and loved. But because of Jesus, we don't have to lie. And deceived to be liked and loved. Because of Jesus, we don't have to minimize our sin or cover up our failures. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took on human flesh. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived in this world, marred by lies and deceit, without ever uttering a false syllable. He was mocked and he was beaten. He never grumbled. He did not make empty promises. Jesus' yes was always his yes. Jesus' no was always no. Every word ever spoken by Christ, gentle, humble, honest, kind, true. And yet, he did fall under condemnation. He hung on a cross condemned. Why? Not for his dishonesty, but for mine. For yours, beloved. Not for his lying lips, but for mine and for yours, beloved. And at the cross, we are laid bare. At the cross, our sin, our lying, our deceit, our dishonesty 
Our blaspheme of God is put on full display for all to see. And then it's covered up. Not by our deceiving, but by Jesus dying for us. And because Jesus is true and trustworthy, he did what he said he would do. Three days later, he gets up, folds up his grave clothes, and walks out of the tomb. And so now we come to Jesus with utter honesty. We bring him our sin. We bring him our failures. We bring him the shame of our lying, the guilt of our deceiving. And we say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me for the ways I've rebelled against you. Forgive me for the ways I've told lies. Forgive me for the deceit that I've, I've given to, shown to others. I've not been a person of integrity, Jesus. And Jesus looks at us. And he says, I'll tell you the truth. I love you. I love you enough to take your sin. I love you enough to bear your shame. I love you enough to endure the curse of your guilt. And I'll tell you the truth. It's not just that I love you. I like you. I want to spend eternity with you. I'm preparing a place for you. And now we have no reason to lie or to deceive. We can let our yes be our yes and our no be our no because we're not trying to win the fickle, shallow acceptance of the world. We're living for a better world, a better king who loves us and likes us. So we don't need to exaggerate. It's not just that we shouldn't. Beloved, that's what I want you to get. It's not that you shouldn't. You don't need to exaggerate accomplishments and successes. Yes, work hard. Use your God-given ambition to do great things but do not ever believe those things to define you. Because if you do, you'll be tempted to lie. Your value and worth are not from what you accomplish, but what from Christ has already accomplished. And that work, beloved, is finished. There's nothing, beloved, there's nothing you can do to make Christ love you more. And we don't have to minimize or excuse or hide our sin. We don't have to lie to cover up our failures because we're loved and liked by Jesus and that will never change. We can be honest. We can boldly confess and humbly repent. We don't have a need to subtract from the truth. Beloved, there's nothing you can do to make Christ love you less. See, we don't have to make empty promises to save face with our friend or our coworker, our boss, our, our family member. We can be honest. When we fail, we can be honest. Because we know nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We don't have to pretend to be somebody we're not to gain the approval of others. We have the approval of God the Father, secured by the blood of Christ, sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. What more approval could you want? So beloved, are there areas in your life where you need to make your yes your yes and your no your no? Not because you have to, but because you get to. James is saying Christians should be people who are radically committed to the truth. Even when it costs us, even in the midst of trials and hardship, those who love Jesus should be men and women who by God's grace are people of integrity. Our word is our bond. We need no other collateral. When we say something we shouldn't, we just repent. And when we speak, 
our lives are marked with such an integrity. There isn't suspicion or reason to question. Our promises are firm and not slippery. Our words are straightforward, not littered with technicalities and loopholes. We say what we mean and we mean what we say. Yes, humbly, gently, kindly, just like our Savior, Jesus. So we don't just tell the truth, we delight in the truth because it reminds us who we are and whose we are. We delight in the truth because the Spirit is indwelling us, changing us one degree of glory to another into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And we find satisfaction in Him. And we do this together. Remember, James is writing to groups of Christians. The word your in verse 12 is plural. If we're going to be radically committed to the truth, people of integrity, not shifting with the winds of the world, we need each other. We do. We need somebody to call us out when we're deceiving or lying or embellishing. That's kind. I mean, it can be done mean, but it's actually a gift of kindness to remind us. It's not who you are. We need to ask each other questions and probe each other's hearts and help each other walk in repentance. Not just saying, did you lie, but why? What was the aim in dishonesty? How does the gospel compel you toward truth and integrity? And then we forgive. We extend grace. It's what God has done with us. We don't become self-righteous. We extend grace. See, beloved, James is calling us to be a community of salt and light. Truth and integrity that we might display the beauty of Jesus to a watching world. That's what he's after. Our gospel-fueled, God-glorifying commitment to truth and honesty should make us a peculiar people. Maybe like a man who shows up holding toilet paper in your door. That's peculiar. What's going on there? So the church should be this peculiar people, savoring Jesus as we delight in him together. Right? Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard and mostly what I need from you. Billy Joel was more right than he realized. And may God give us the grace to be a different kind of community, a community that meets this need, a community that remembers the weight of our words, a community that doesn't deceive others because we don't have to. We have all that we need in Christ a community that delights in the truth together as we remind each other who we are and whose we are, sons and daughters of a God who loves us and likes us. Beloved, may our yes be our yes and our no be our no. This is where true freedom, life, and joy is found. And when we live this way, who knows what God might do, how God might use our integrity to help others see their need for Jesus and the beauty of Jesus, who is himself, the way, the truth, and the life. For my friends might be living in deceit, we call you to this good news of the gospel. We want to invite you into the freedom and the joy and the beauty of being honest with God that you might find he offers truth that might satisfy your soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the beauty of truth. Jesus, we're thankful that you don't call us to do anything that you yourself are unwilling to do. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us be men and women 
rebars of gospel steel in our soul. That are satisfied by the beauty of truth. That we would live in the integrity and truth, not because we have to, but because we get to. Grant us repentance where we might be lying or deceiving, that we might come to Christ and savor him above all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.